there have been warnings from Russia that this war here in Ukraine could escalate into a third world war. They are talking about NATO fighting a proxy war here. Do, do you worry that this could spread, this could escalate? I sincerely believe that a nuclear war is unthinkable and we need to do everything possible to make it impossible. Yes, please. That would be a good idea. Thank you, Mr. Gutierrez. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle's KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from Brad Blog. Com. Thank you very much for joining us today on our previous broadcast. We had shared President Biden's uh, Thursday remarks from the White House asking Congress for $33 billion to further arm Ukraine with defensive military weapons and humanitarian aid after running through the $14 billion worth of aid already sent to the besieged nation of Ukraine as they continue to face down an onslaught from neighboring Russia. But are more arms the answer? Or should the U.S. and its NATO partners and the U.N.? You heard Antonio Gutierrez there, uh, U.N. chief who was in Kiev uh, Thursday, Thursday, overnight Wednesday to Thursday, uh, as Kiev was actually hit with uh, um, artillery while uh, Gutierrez was there. <laughs> yes, which which uh, one Ukrainian official called a big middle finger to the United Nations. There you go. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. Anyway, should the U.S., NATO, U.N., etc., be pushing harder for diplomatic solutions to the conflict? Uh, and will further arming Ukraine at this point with heavier and heavier weaponry only push Russia to expand the conflict? As many now fear and as more and more in the Russian state run media in particular seem to be calling for now 
A uh, recent interview with linguist professor and anti-war activist Noam Chomsky saw the uh, longtime liberal icon describing American policy as praising ourselves for heroism while fighting Russia to the last Ukrainian. He argued, as have other left-wing critics, that the U.S. and NATO countries supplying Ukraine with weapons to fight Russian invaders amounts to warmongering escalation, and that while he was sympathetic with the position of Ukraine and its president, Vladimir Zelensky, the, quote, reality of the world, he said, is that essentially the choices are now down to a negotiated settlement that concedes to the Russian demands or an expanded war that is likely to become World War Three. I don't know if you use the word likely, but that is possible to become uh, a nuclear World War Three concessions, he argued, are the, quote, alternative to the destruction of Ukraine and nuclear war. There's been some debate about that in the uh, about Chomsky's comments in the uh, academic and anti-war community. And our guest joining us shortly suggests that really it's a false choice, as Chomsky paints it, uh, that the options are not serious diplomacy that ends the fighting or military escalation. And then, in fact, arming Ukraine is the path to peace. We will uh, speak with my guests momentarily about that to explain why. But first up, oh, and, and we've got some good news for a happy change that I promise no matter how dark <laughs> today's show may get regarding the war in Ukraine and everything else, we will send you home with some good accountability news that you can uh, feel good about. So at least there's that. Very quickly, however, and in, in news related to Ukraine that we've been covering, uh, European Union countries are now likely to approve as early as uh, Wednesday, I believe. They're, they've agreed to approve a phased embargo on Russian oil, according to officials, sealing a long postponed measure that has divided the bloc's members and highlighted their dependence on Russian energy sources. They've already agreed to a phase out of Russian coal. Now they're looking at phasing out Russian oil. And of course, while that's no doubt good news for Ukraine and bad news for Russia, which depends on oil sales, gas sales, coal sales to fund this war and their economy. I think oil is something like 50 percent of their economy. Uh, it's also potentially bad news for American consumers, because the price of oil is based on global markets and there this is uh, certain to increase pressure on those markets and raise prices even further than they already have with oil company CEOs here in the U.S. already admitting that they don't want to increase supply because they like increasing their already record profits. And yeah, something I think Chevron reported something like, oh, I don't know, a four to five times increase in profits over 2020 uh, during the height of the pandemic. So yeah, how, they like it. How patriotic of them, jerks. Uh, anyway, uh, very quickly, uh, but that could be big news, and and we'll see what that uh, how Russia responds to to that move in uh, in Europe, uh, and in related related news, I guess here at home, on a story an, an outrage really that we've been following in in recent weeks and months on this program. We spoke with Adrian Martinez of Earth Justice about this, I think, back in February. 
uh, promising that this would happen. Well, now it has 16 states. The District of Columbia and environmental activist groups are now suing the U.S. Postal Service to block its purchase of 148,000 gas-guzzling mail delivery trucks over the next decade, alleging the agency has vastly underestimated the vehicle's costs and adverse ecological impacts, and that, in fact, those uh, trucks should be all-electric instead. The suits brought by the state attorneys general uh, of a bunch of states, uh, brought by Earth Justice and the Natural Resources Defense Council contend that the mail service relied on faulty assumptions, I'd say purposely faulty, yeah. uh, and miscalculations, I'd say purposely miscalculated, to justify spending as much as $11.3 billion on gas-powered vehicles that get, sit down for this one, 8.6 miles per gallon which is barely better than the 30-year-old vehicles that are currently in use across the country. The agency's purchase plan would have only 10% of the new fleet dedicated to electric-powered vehicles, well below benchmarks set by the Postal Service's competitors like FedEx and UPS and Amazon. So well done, Donald Trump's corrupt Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy. Transportation, as uh, Washington Post notes, is the single biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. EV proponents had hoped that the Postal Service would provide, uh, that a, a big contract with the Postal Service would provide a lift for electric automobiles in this country. Although there's wide consensus on the necessity of new mail trucks, everyone agrees we need them, the deal that the agency struck with Oshkosh Defense in 2021 to build them, yes, Trump's Postmaster General went to a defense contractor to build trucks for the U.S. Postal Service. A defense contractor who's never, ever built any kind of delivery truck of this nature. Instead of all of the companies, the American automobile companies that we have. That, that have that experience. Exactly. Uh, anyway, that move was criticized by the environmental groups, which has said that it's a marginal commitment to EVs among this huge new purchase was insufficient. Meanwhile, organized labor groups are outraged about the uh, company's decision, Oshkosh's decision to move manufacturing away from unionized shops. The nearly one million member United Auto Workers Union joined the NRDC suit, objecting to the contract because Oshkosh announced that it's going to build the new trucks in a brand new non-unionized factory down in South Carolina rather than its unionized flagship facilities in Wisconsin. Funny how that worked. They waited till after the contract was signed to announce that. So, huh. yeah. So, uh, D D he, DeJoy contracted with a union shop in Wisconsin, and the company said, great, we'll take it, and then, you know, uh, thanks for this huge government contract. We're going to do it now in South Carolina in a whole new factory we haven't built yet so we can use non-union labor. But the environmental aspect here is perhaps the most maddening and, and certainly the most dangerous and perhaps unlawful. The Postal Service began studying the environmental impacts of these vehicles, which federal regulators estimate would emit roughly the same amount of earth-warming carbon dioxide each year as 4.3 million passenger vehicles. They started uh, looking at the environmental impacts only after 
they had made the contract with Oshkosh only after they had paid them $482 million to begin production. The suits allege the agency conducted its analysis to retroactively justify its procurement decision. Postmaster DeJoy placed the agency's first order for 50,000 trucks in March. Just 10,000 of those will be electric, though that was double what he had originally planned in this first group. California Attorney General Rob Bonta, whose office is leading the state's case, said, quote, the Postal Service has a historic opportunity to invest in our planet and in our future. Instead, it's doubling down on outdated technologies that are bad for our environment and bad for our communities. Once this purchase goes through, he notes, we'll be stuck with more than 100,000 new gas-guzzling vehicles on neighborhood streets for the next 30 years. There won't be a reset button, he said in his statement. We're going to court to make sure the Postal Service complies with the law and considers more environmentally friendly alternatives before making the decision. Regulators from the EPA and the White House Council on Environmental Quality have found serious deficiencies. <laughs> serious the, deficiencies is putting it politely. Yeah, with the uh, study done by the Postal Service, they said the agency significantly underestimated, for example, the cost of gas, uh, gas-powered vehicles. It's projected that fuel prices will be $2.19 per gallon, uh, that For is, the next 30 years. <laughs> yes, that's about 50 percent lower than they were uh, in, in the national average just this past week. Uh, EPA and White House also detailed how the emissions could worsen the climate crisis. And the, also, you yeah. know, neighborhood pollution, you yeah. know, kids playing outside, everybody in those neighborhoods that are mm-hmm. going to suffer from these gas guzzlers that are polluting their neighborhoods when it does not have to be that way. Which is why President Biden has called for the entire federal civilian fleet to go all electric by 2035. Uh, The mail agency's 217,000 vehicles apparently make up the largest share of the government's non-military vehicles. Uh, The suit charges that the Postal Service signed a contract, paid millions of dollars for these vehicles first before beginning its environmental analysis to justify its actions in, quote, blatant violation of the National Environmental Policy Act. Now, so, one thing that we yeah. should note is that just this past week, the Biden administration restored the National Environmental Policy Act so that local communities could say, hey, this thing that you're about yeah. to do is going to pollute our neighborhood and we are not going to go for that and would require including climate impacts in such contracts like these. Yeah, I mean, the Trump administration said basically, oh, forget about that. Don't worry about those environmental impact studies. Who cares what the local community thinks? Yep. So, so yay, the, Biden, for reinstoring the National Environmental Policy Act, under which this lawsuit is going to challenge the U.S. Postal Service contract. And the states have said that uh, these trucks from the federal government are going to make it impossible for them to meet their own environmental commitments. The uh, attorney for the NRDC said what we're asking the court to do is make them go back and redo the environmental analysis. What the Postal Service actually buys, who they contract with, is a decision that should come out of the analysis after a victory in our case, he notes. The joy took the uh, told the 
the Washington Post in March that the Postal Service just did not have enough knowledge or experience with electric vehicles <laughs> when he took office back in 2020 to pursue more EVs in the truck procurement. We don't know how to do it. We just can't do it. We can't figure it out. It's impossible. It's too hard. Experience with electric vehicles. Anyway, all right. So uh, some good news there. Before we turn to the darker news, let's take a quick break. We'll come back to see if the uh, if the peace train at this point has completely left the station in Ukraine. And if so, well, what's coming next? Are our only choices at this point to keep pumping arms into Ukraine and face the possibility of an expanded, potentially nuclear world war? Or force Ukraine to make some sort of a peace deal with Russia, as Noam Chomsky is advocating? Or is there another way to look at all of this? Political scientist and international relations expert Nicholas Grossman joins us next to discuss just that. And remember, no matter what, good news at the end of today's show. I'm Brad Friedman. You're listening to The Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. The old peace train. I remember that. Whatever happened to that train? Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Can we get back on track? In the very early days of Russia's horrific war on Ukraine, we spoke on this program with Russia-Ukraine author and expert Anatole Levin of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft about the need to find a way to peace in that conflict, even if it included some very difficult choices that would need to be made by Ukraine and even NATO in order to save thousands of Ukrainian lives. Forget the cheese. Let's get out of the trap, he advised at the time, quoting from early 1950s U.S. Defense Secretary Robert Lovett. Some of those difficult choices to help get out of that trap included the need for a declaration of neutrality by Ukraine, a willingness to forego membership in NATO, and perhaps agreeing to cede parts of the disputed Donbass region to Russia, and perhaps recognizing Crimea as a permanent part of Russia. Early in the war, Ukraine reportedly expressed willingness to make some of those difficult choices via peace talks, but it does not seem as though they were enough at least to bring the war, now in its ninth horrible week, to an early end. More than two months into the deadly conflict, with Ukraine having mounted a surprisingly effective resistance and defense of their major cities against Russia, even at the cost of unspeakable losses in certain areas, 
Russia has seemingly been knocked back on its heels. It has been regrouping largely in the south and east of Ukraine to mount some sort of a new, more unified offensive, at least in theory. Vladimir Putin in recent days has refused to back down from the aggression, however, despite what are believed to be tremendous losses for Russia and as increasingly punishing sanctions from NATO and other Western allies mount. He has vowed nonetheless to complete Russia's objectives in Ukraine, even if those objectives are still not completely clear to the world, maybe not even to Russia. The U.S. and NATO in recent days have increased their supply of arms to Ukraine, including now heavy armory. As some on the left, according to University of Illinois political scientist Nicholas Grossman at the Daily Beast this week, have denounced the effort as warmongering. Citing a recent interview with eminent left-wing scholar and anti-war activist Noam Chomsky, who is critical of NATO and the U.S. for arming Ukraine rather than insisting on diplomatic solutions, Grossman writes, I fault no one for lamenting the destruction and hoping for peace, but that assessment misunderstands this war and America's role in it. The decision of when to stop fighting for Ukraine is up to Ukrainians, writes Grossman. Helping them while balancing other risks is the best path to peace. That, for now, argues Grossman in his piece headlined Arming Ukraine is the Path to Peace, means yes, arming Ukraine. As President Biden on Thursday asked Congress to allocate another $33 billion in military and humanitarian aid to Ukraine, after already burning through some $14 billion in aid, previously appropriated by Congress to help Ukraine defend uh, themselves earlier in the conflict, while otherwise keeping Biden's promise to keep U.S. and NATO troops out of the direct conflict in hopes of avoiding what many fear could ultimately turn into World War III. So far, Biden and NATO have managed to uh, avoid that, and the military assistance has obviously gone a long way in shoring up the impressive Ukrainian resistance. Chomsky, however, as Grossman notes, argued that America should push Ukraine to accept Russian demands. As the liberal icon observed in that recent interview, quote, you can sympathize with Ukrainian President Zelensky's position, but you can also pay attention to the reality of the world. That reality, Chomsky argues, is, quote, neutralization of Ukraine, some kind of accommodation for the Donbass region, and taking the status of Crimea off the negotiating table. He compares Russia to a hurricane and argues that concessions are the, quote, alternative to the destruction of Ukraine and nuclear war. The longtime anti-war activist drew criticism from some quarters for denying both Ukrainian and Russian agency, writes Grossman, and for sounding like a Putin apologist. Grossman notes that Chomsky, nonetheless, has his defenders, like philosophy instructor Ben Burgess, who recently argued, also at the Daily Beast, that Chomsky is right. The U.S. should work to negotiate an end to the war in Ukraine. Burgess explained, Chomsky's analysis is that the options are, on the one hand, a serious push for Russia, Ukraine, the U.S., and other powers to sit down and hammer out a negotiated settlement to end the fighting, or, on the other, continued escalation in which, at best, countless additional Ukrainian lives will be lost. At worst, 
the regional war could escalate into a broader conflict that could lead to World War III. But, argues Grossman in response, that is a false choice. Is it? Why? Well, let's ask him. Nicholas Grossman is an international relations professor and political scientist teaching classes on terrorism insurgency, national security policy, and 21st century technology and warfare at the University of Illinois. He's also the author of Drones and Terrorism, Asymmetric Warfare and the Threat to Global Security. Professor Grossman, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, you write, uh, Nicholas, that the options here are not simply, as Chomsky argues, serious diplomacy that ends the fighting or military escalation. Okay, as our theme song on this program is stuck in the middle with you, what are the other options here then? So the, even just framing it as diplomacy or war mm -hmm. is a mistake in that the war and diplomacy are not alternatives. They go together. Mm -hmm. Just about every war ends with some sort of negotiated solution. Mm -hmm. And the negotiations go on not only sometimes with verbal meetings between the two, and as you noticed, Ukraine had w was willing to meet with Russia mm -hmm. and did offer some concessions, and those weren't enough, mm -hmm. but also that the actions on the ground are, in effect, a negotiation. So the way that a lot of political science treats war is think of it kind of like as a bargaining process. You have these two sides, so Russia and Ukraine, mm -hmm. and Russia wants something, and Ukraine really doesn't want to give it, and Russia's willing to kill to try to get it, and Ukraine is willing to kill to try to not give it. Mm. As long as that's the case, then the two of them don't actually know what they can force the other one to accept. And so the war itself, the actual fighting, mm. is to some extent a negotiating process. It is the fighting on the ground that is pushing both sides, in this case Russia and Ukraine, to figure out what exactly they can force the other one to accept. Mm -hmm. And so Russia, there, um, in that sense, there will be peace, but the peace is going to look like many possible different things. One option is a peace where Ukraine is independent. Another option is where Ukraine is subjugated by Russia. And both of those are technically peace, mm -hmm. but the Chomsky argument seems to be pushing more for the peace with Ukraine bowing down before Russia. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is the Ukrainians don't want to. And there's nothing that America can do to make them do it. So the action of, hey, we could have this option of just getting them to talk down and then work it out and there would be peace, but instead we're not doing that, mm. we're causing war, just misunderstands the thing. As long as Russia and Ukraine want to fight, they're going to fight, and the United States can't stop that. So our choice is leave the Ukrainians on their own or help them as they try to fight for independence. Now, many anti-war advocates, a group that I would certainly include myself in, even as I've argued in favor of helping Ukraine militarily to defend itself, at least as of the moment that Putin began his uh, brutal assault on Ukraine, are worried, uh, nonetheless, that all of this does turn into eventually World War III and, yeah, the use of nuclear weapons, as, as Chomsky notes. In fact... Uh, Nicholas, we're hearing more and more of this kind of talk on Russian state media of late, describing Russia's efforts as uh, an existential, quote, holy war, if for now a proxy one between Russia and NATO, and that if nuclear weapons are needed to carry out that holy war, according to Putin's supporters on state-run media, well, so be it. Aren't we hastening that possibility by continuing to pump in 
so many weapons into the conflict rather than insisting uh, more on diplomacy. So I think that's a very reasonable fear. Um, it's a fear that I share, and it's one that I think is being maybe not considered sufficiently, at least say among maybe the public or, or media, mm-hmm. um, or people who are say cheering it on as, um, you know, oh, there's almost no downside. Mm-hmm. I've heard of, oh, no, we can't give in to nuclear blackmail or, or anything like that. We shouldn't be afraid of Putin's nuclear weapons, and of course we should, because nuclear weapons are very scary. And the problem that I have with this line of argument is not that we should be we shouldn't be afraid of escalation to nuclear war because we very much should be my objection to it is that fear of escalation to nuclear war is evident in u.s policy this is something that we by which i mean the broad kind of foreign policy national security community mm-hmm. have spent literally decades worrying about so much of the cold war so much of game theory was invented to worry about escalation to nuclear war and so we should be worrying about it, but the United States under Joe Biden has been avoiding a lot of the things that people have, some have been calling for that could potentially escalate to that. So, mm-hmm. for example, um, there were calls for a no-fly zone, mm-hmm. and this is something I was very much against because I, I understand the sympathy for seeing Ukrainians get slaughtered and wanting to do something about it. But a no-fly zone is a American forces shoot down Russian military forces Mm -hmm. zone. Mm -hmm. And to do that, the way the United States would do it, is first it would be we have to go and shoot down a lot of, blow up a lot of their radar and air defenses before we're willing to fly and shoot down their planes. And every previous time the United States did it, uh, no-fly zone, like over northern Iraq Mm -hmm. uh, after the Gulf War, the U.S. had to shoot down enemy aircraft. Um, And so that would be a very serious escalation to Mm -hmm. World War III, or potential for it. And Biden has smartly avoided it. He also nixed the transfer of aircraft from Poland to Ukraine, even though it was the Poles giving it, arguing that Russia might potentially see that as coming from NATO. Mm -hmm. So they're walking a careful line here. And the criticism that they're just kind of barreling towards World War III without any concern about any of this doesn't reflect the actual policy. Mm -hmm. That it's balancing those two. How do we help Ukraine as much as possible without unacceptably raising the risk of nuclear war? And that's a careful line to walk, but I think the administration has done a pretty good job of it, Uh, balancing those two. I actually think they've done a pretty masterful job of it so far, uh, walking through that, uh, forgive the pun, the minefields in this particular conflict, at least so far. Uh, But what should then the role of the U.S. and NATO be here? How much should they push for diplomatic solutions? Is there is there any more that we or the U.N. could or should be doing to encourage peace talks uh, and, and some sort of diplomatic solution right now? So I don't, I really don't think so. And uh, it's a frustrating, you know, that, that's a sort of upsetting thing to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but where uh, it is not at all clear to me that there is something that could be done. And that's why I said, you know, I fault no one for wanting peace. Mm-hmm. Um, there just doesn't seem to be an avenue for it. And uh, even, for example, the Ukrainians had originally talked about maybe making some concessions, and both with their military success and then with all the evidence of Russian war crimes, of just massacring civilians mm-hmm. and mass rapes, mass graves, and um, torture, and all these other evidence from the areas that Ukraine was able to push Russia out of mm-hmm. around Kiev, around the capital. That has the Ukrainians furious, quite understandably so. And they could react to something like that as, oh, no, we're so scared of this, we don't want it to happen anymore. We're willing to make big concessions, please don't kill us anymore. Mm -hmm. But that's not the choice they're making. The choice they're making, we are utterly furious, 
Amendments really matters to us. We are going to fight for it. And if they're going to do that, then either Russia has to say, okay, we accept that Ukraine is an independent country, or uh, Ukraine is going to have to make them. Or vice versa, Russia will make Ukraine say, okay, you are uh, not a real country, you're basically subjugated, you have to um, bow down before our rule, and then Ukrainians will maybe accept it. But as long as they want to fight, Mm -hmm. and as long as Russia will not acknowledge Ukraine's independence, then there isn't really anything outside we can do. The only two things we could do, realistically, when you think of break down the conflict that way, is either help the Ukrainians by giving them weapons so that they can frustrate the Russian military effort until Russia agrees to uh, reduce its demands. And already Russia had reduced its demands, where it was clearly going for regime change mm-hmm. and trying to demanded that Ukrainian President Zelensky leave, and he didn't. And they have now moved away from the capital and changed their war aims to try to control territory Donbass. And then the, what Russia said but won't be able to do was in control all the south, mm-hmm. meaning all the uh, Black Sea coast. And so if we help Ukraine, then we push it towards a peace settlement where Russia says, okay, I guess we can't accomplish this. Or we could abandon Ukraine, say, hey, Ukrainians, we're cutting off all these weapons. That means Russia will have a bigger military advantage over you, and therefore you should quit. Mm -hmm. And part of the problem I have with that is, even if we did that, I don't think they would quit. We would probably see, um, at minimum, some sort of prolonged insurgency. And so we are unfortunately stuck with a conflict in this place, and uh, this part of the world, Mm -hmm. and then we just have to figure out whether the conflict's going to end more in Russia's favor or more in Ukraine's favor. There isn't some sort of, here we can push you to a mutually agreed-upon solution because there is no solution they currently both agree upon. Nicholas Grossman, what happened, in fact, to the peace talks? We were hearing quite a bit about that in the early weeks of the war. I was off last week, so maybe I missed something, lost the thread. But uh, have the peace talks just broken down completely at this point, to your knowledge? As best as I know, yes. Mm. But there might be some behind the scenes, you know, some... Uh, maybe intelligence officers in contact to try to mm-hmm. keep some dialogue going. I don't know, but that's the sort of thing that uh, governments usually at least try to keep going. But uh, we have Putin sticking with a lot of maximalist goals and uh, continuing to make big demands from Ukraine while also lying about what's going on in the conflict. And the uh, and Ukrainian leaders, in particular Zelensky, have been shifting more towards uh, adamant refusal and anger. Um, so there seems to be even less of a bargaining space than there was before. Maybe at the start of the conflict, mm. um, if Russia had not been so adamant on going for a regime change, if yeah. they just accepted something like some territorial concessions in the West, that might have been a diplomatic solution that could have avoided war. Yeah. As long as Ukrainians don't want to be a part of Russia, there is not a good bargaining space for them to agree to. And it looks like, if anything, currently, that has broken down more. And the only way I can see to try to get it is one side needs to be convinced that they can't accomplish militarily what they want to accomplish. And that happens, of course, on the battlefield, as you argue. Now, many on the left, uh, Nicholas, have, have, and those who support Putin, of course, have argued that NATO, NATO is to blame here, that, that they you know, broke their promises against expanding too far to the east uh, after the Cold War, that they brought this upon themselves, and perhaps even uh, that they wanted this war to somehow weaken Russia. I don't believe that last part in any event is true, but at least until Russia launched an all-out military assault on Ukraine, 
I actually had some sympathy with the argument, the general argument, that NATO did not take Russia's concerns seriously as, you know, they would, for example, if Russia began sending military uh, support to Mexico or Canada, for example. Uh, Does NATO have any blame here? And even if so, does it actually matter at this point, given where we now are? Some blame, yes, but no, I don't think it matters, given where we are now. Uh, so one of the things like, you know, Russia being in a military alliance with Canada or Mexico is one of those hypotheticals that um, doesn't really make sense because mm-hmm. uh, Mexico and Canada have no interest in being in a military alliance with Russia. And whereas a bunch of NATO countries, all the former Eastern, uh, former Soviet countries in Eastern Europe, voluntarily joined NATO. They were mm-hmm. not in any way forced to at gunpoint, mm-hmm. for example. They, mm-hmm. they asked to get in. Um, so at one level, it's acknowledging that they have this different agency. Um, that each has their own agency and can make the choice. Well, the hypothetical, the hypothetical, to say the, hi- the hypothetical in this case would be that you know Mexico wanted uh, or Canada wanted to be in some sort of alliance with Russia, and how we would respond to that. Because I think that there's not, at least in the Western media, not enough appreciation of. What I think is the real concerns that Russia had having, you know, NATO, uh, you know, closer and closer to its borders. Uh, But I noticed that you write at Daily Daily Beast that even without provocation from NATO, you think it's very possible that Russia may have taken on this expansion anyway and that NATO is sort of a convenient excuse. Is that am I reading that correctly? Mostly. Um, so okay. I think the NATO argument about uh, making Russia nervous is a, a very reasonable one, that from Russia's perspective, this was a anti-Soviet alliance, and then instead of after the end of the Soviet Union, instead of staying the same or maybe ending, it grows, and it gets closer to Russia's borders. So from a, a broad geopolitical perspective, I think it's very reasonable for the Russian government to look at that and say, this is a big geopolitical challenge for us, we should try to counter it. The part where it loses me is saying then, oh, because there were some countries that voluntarily decided to uh, work with the United States, and instead of, you know, saying being friendly with us, or in Ukraine's case, uh, one where they elected presidents that looked more towards Europe than towards Russia, Mm -hmm. therefore, it's justified to slaughter a bunch of Ukrainians. That part doesn't make sense. That's, Mm -hmm. That's a leap. And so... Uh, I am very skeptical uh, that there was some sort of option, like, for example, if Biden had stood up in, say, January and went, fine, fine, Ukraine will never be in NATO. We promise they will never be in NATO. I'm very skeptical that Putin would have said, great, that's all I wanted. Thank you. Um, And, you know, I believe your promises, America. That's good enough for me. Uh Um, That I'm very skeptical of that. And with the broader sense of after the Cold War, um, I'm in the group. This is a big debate among international relations scholars. But uh, I'm in the group that thinks, uh, one is, who really knows? There's so many different possibilities of it. Um, but I'm pretty skeptical that Russia would have taken this big hit after the end of the Cold War and then said, okay, we're not interested in having a lot of influence over these former Soviet countries. They can just be free to do whatever they want as long as they don't join NATO, because, of course, that would make us nervous. That Russia would have, and Putin has been openly talking about for 20 years, mm-hmm. wanting to reconstitute uh, something like the Soviet Union, or at least, say, have more influence in its near abroad, a lot of former Soviet countries. Um, There was a war in uh, Russia attacked Georgia in 2008. 
Georgia was not a member of NATO. There were, there were maybe some discussions about it. When Russia attacked Ukraine in 2014, the triggering factor was nothing to do with NATO. Uh, it was that mm-hmm. Ukraine ousted a corrupt pro-Russia president, and the next election put in a pro-EU president. Mm-hmm. So when you put that all together, the idea of Russia being nervous about NATO makes sense. The idea of Russia starting this war specifically because of NATO yep. doesn't really make sense. Yeah, I think you're right on the money there. And that's, uh, you know, one of the differences. And, and like I said, I'm sympathetic with the with the critics, the concerns uh, from the left, from folks like Chomsky. I'm an anti-war person, too. It's been interesting, you know, when this war began, uh, you know, I had to point out, hey, I was against the U.S. attacking a sovereign nation in Iraq, and that is no different from my position now. I am against Russia attacking a sovereign neighbor in in that same regard. I think you can be anti-war and hold U.S. accountable when they do what they do, and you can hold Russia accountable when they do what they do. But, uh, Nicholas Grossman, as I know you uh, also discussed this topic uh, at the University of Illinois as well, doesn't this conflict really unfortunately, once again, prove that, yes, uh, as much as I hate to say it, nuclear weapons work, that, you know, any country that has them is likely to be able to ultimately hold off any and all aggressors. I mean, is there any question that NATO would probably already be directly in this conflict if Russia did not have nuclear weapons as their uh, as their ace in the hole here? Probably, yes. That uh, and works in a, a couple different ways. Um, this is first, also your your distinction with uh, opposition to the Iraq War and opposition to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I call that position anti-war, mm-hmm. and the alternative one, um, not anti-war per se, but anti-American. Uh, meaning that if if you look at the Iraq War and you blame America, oh, that makes a lot of sense. America started it. Mm-hmm. If you look at Russia's invasion of Ukraine and blame America, that sounds to me more like kind of knee-jerk anti-Americanism. Yes. Just yes. assuming that America must be the bad guy right. as opposed to uh, with Russia. And, and by um, the way, on the, it, the, that doesn't excuse anything that America did up to the point, as I see it, up no, to of the point not. of you know, February 24 when, uh, when, when Russia marched into Ukraine. Yeah, it's, of, course, of course it doesn't. It's just recognizing that uh, Russia has a choice, and the invasion of Ukraine and the actions they have taken in the invasion mm-hmm. are Russia's choice. Nobody made them do it. You know, there was no, like, gun to their head. Mm-hmm. If you don't do this, you're probably going to be, uh, be destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, on the nuclear uh, question, I just want to caution you on the if anybody gets it. But in general, yeah, nuclear deterrence works really well. That um, I was in part trained by in uh, grad school by someone who thinks that uh, the people who invented what's called second strike, basically what makes mutual assured destruction work, deserve mm-hmm. the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, and you can see that not only in uh, NATO being very hesitant to get into uh, Ukraine directly with Russia, but also where Russia has, at least thus far, and uh, I think there's a good chance of will in the future, um, respected the NATO line. So there are weapons going into Ukraine from NATO countries, and Russia has bombed those weapons shipments or staging areas mm-hmm. in places in Ukraine that are close to the border of Poland mm-hmm. or close to the border of Romania, but they don't go over because those countries are in NATO. And much as we're afraid of World War III, Russia's actions show that mm-hmm. they are also afraid of World War III. Excellent. And so nuclear weapons yeah. are in that way stabilizing. Um, in other ways, like, say, if Iran got them, I think that'd be very un- very destabilizing, in part because it would encourage people like the Saudis and uh, Turks and Egyptians that they need them, too. Mm-hmm. And that could cause all sorts of problems. Um, so I don't want to go and say, hey, nuclear weapons, you just spread them around and your countries are secure and it's not a problem. There are so many other 
ways that that stuff can go wrong, uh, <laughs> accident or theft or miscalculation or yeah. seeing something on radar that you think is a launch and it's actually, I don't know, an error or birds yeah. or who knows what. There's so many, so many ways it can go wrong short of someone saying, I choose to push the button here yeah. on, you know, I know what I'm doing. Well, um, and so I'm you know, very nervous at that part. Well, uh, no, yeah, I, they, I am they too. They really well as parents. Yeah, don't yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm not in favor of them. I'm just saying they do seem to they do seem to work in that regard. Uh, near your conclusion uh, at at Daily Beast in your uh, article, you argue uh, whether to settle with Russia and on what terms is Ukraine's decision to make. If they like a deal, the U.S. should support it, even if it means removing economic pressure sanctions that Putin critics have advocated for years. Do you believe? Nicholas Grossman that the U.S. and EU at this point would be willing to actually do that if Russia, you know, did show up at the peace talks and say, okay, uh, ceasefire so long as you end all of these sanctions. I'm not even sure at this point uh, U.S. or EU would do that or even that they should do that. I don't know either. Um, I am... You know, I can partially duck this question by saying that <laughs> there is no deal that Ukraine likes now. Uh-huh. So, you know, we don't need to worry about it. But uh-huh. um, the hypothetical situation in which the uh, United States and Europe feels like uh, Russia's on its heels, that uh, Putin has been a growing problem for well over a decade at this point, and there was a decent chance it would have to be dealt with in some sort of confrontation, quite possibly one that he would start, like we're seeing right now. And so there have been a variety of advocates, especially since 2014, when Russia took Crimea and started uh, the war in the Donbass, mm-hmm. um, that uh, the U.S. should be, and uh, Europe should be cracking down on the oligarchs and uh, on Putin's finances and doing sanctions like we're seeing now anyway. So there is a decent amount of momentum. Uh, and like Gary Kasparov, for example, the chess champion and now mm-hmm. anti-Putin activist, is mm-hmm. one who makes this argument a lot, that you should have been trying to get rid of Putin for years. Now you actually have an opportunity to potentially get rid of him. You can't stop. Like, mm. this is it, you know, push hard. Um, my take on it is that this is consistent with the idea of it's Ukraine's war, which means that uh, I would have a hard time if the Ukrainians say, look, we really like this deal. We, we trust that Russia will carry it out. We want to take it. The only thing we need is for you to agree to remove these sanctions. Um, I, in sticking with the idea that it's Ukraine's war, I would not want the United States to say, sorry, Ukraine, you got to st- keep on getting killed. We think yeah. we got an advantage here. Um, that, you know, that part I would have a lot of trouble with. Incredibly. Um, that said, yeah. there's a, there really, Putin really is a problem and has done a lot of uh, pretty bad things, including, I mean, uh, and this is really, I think we're seeing the pinnacle of it, but um, also to, uh, to Russians and to interfering in a variety of democracies and um, the and human rights violations and, you know, so many other things, mm. that uh, this has been a problem. And so at least as long as the Ukrainians are uh, devoted to fighting, don't want to cut some sort of deal with Russia, then I very much like supporting them and also seeing it as Russia started this, and it would be in the advantage of not just Ukraine, not just Europe or the U.S., but the whole world if, uh, if this goes poorly, if it goes down in history, not only as something where Russia in the future says, oh, we're not going to try something like that, but also where, for example, when China is thinking about, oh, do we want to attack Taiwan or not? It would be a lot better if they look to the Russia-Ukraine case and say, oh, look at that, it, uh, it went really badly, we don't want to try it, mm. as opposed to something like, well, it looked like they had some trouble for a few months, but, you know, then the world got over it and let go of all the sanctions <laughs> and everything was fine and they got new territory.
um, that we wanted to be that first one. So while Ukrainians are quite reasonably thinking about their own survival, their own independence, things that are specific to Ukraine, one of the responsibilities of uh, the U.S. and Europe as global powers uh, is to also think about the broader geopolitical mm-hmm. situation. Um, so I, I am admittedly a little torn about yeah. whether I would want to see this keep going to the point that it keeps weakening Russia and makes it that Putin can't do something like this again, or as uh, if there would be any option for peace that would reduce the killing, that as long as the Ukrainians would take it, I, I think I would want to take it too. Yeah. And I, I can't tell them to you know, keep sex. That would be turning it from a Ukrainian war of independence into a proxy war. It would and uh, likely will, maybe hopefully will, be a very difficult choice once once we actually get to that point. It seems we're, at this point, nowhere near it, unfortunately. I, I hope we find our way there, and if we do, Nicholas Grossman, I hope you'll join us uh, on the show at that point to hash all of this out. Your insights are greatly appreciated here. Uh, I, I hope you don't mind if we bother you again uh, even before we get to that uh, difficult uh, choice. But, uh, and as a matter of fact, before I go very quickly, just to help you move some, uh, move some books here, you wrote a book in 2018 titled Drones and Terrorism, Asymmetric Warfare and the Threat to Global Security. We've, we've heard uh, quite a bit about how drones are actually being effectively used by the Ukrainian resistance against the, their Russian invaders. Has that given them, very quickly, uh, has that given them any sort of perhaps ironic asymmetric advantage against the bigger guns uh, of Russia? So, um, yes, about a big advantage. Um, not in a asymmetric sense. So the um, Ukraine-Russia war is more is symmetric in that inside Ukraine, so obviously Russia's a lot bigger, mm-hmm. but inside Ukraine, the military forces are more or less comparable. Um, so when I think about uh, asymmetric fighting, think about, say, you know, insurgency versus counterinsurgency, so terrorists versus counterterrorists, mm-hmm. of where... Um, one side is clearly a lot bigger mm-hmm. than, and a lot more capable than the other. Um, but that being said, of where the drones are making a big difference, um, where it's a Turkish model uh, called uh, the TB2 that mm-hmm. Ukraine has been using, and it has been using it to great effect mm-hmm. of taking out uh, tanks and vehicles and even some anti-aircraft batteries um, and other things in a lot of these stalled Russian convoys. Those are kind of sitting ducks. And that also reflects, though, the some of the flaws of the Russian military, the Russian military execution. If a lot of military observers, you know, you know, me included, thought that the Russians would be better at this, that modern warfare is really complex, really hard, um, but there are a few basic things that they have failed to do, one of which is establish air superiority. So these drones, meaning, you know, control the skies. In the United States, that would be the opening move of any war. Control the skies first. Don't send a whole bunch of ground forces in, because if you don't control the skies, then they can be shot at from the air. And these drones are not very fast and not very maneuverable. They're not that hard to shoot down. A fighter jet could definitely shoot them down. A lot of ground uh, air defense systems could shoot them down. Um, And the fact that Russia hasn't, that there are still a number of them flying and shooting at Russians from the sky, shows that both uh, it's a useful weapon for Ukraine, but also that the Russian military is not as good about handling that stuff as they should be. Nicholas Grossman is international relations professor and political scientist at the University of Illinois. You can follow him on the Twitters at ngrossman81, ngrossman81. Uh, he's also the senior editor of the ARC Digital Newsletter, where he writes an American uh, f- on, on American foreign policy and national security. You can sign up for that at grossman.org. 
arcdigital.media. And, of course, his uh, piece over at the Daily Beast this week, which we will link to from bradblog.com, is Arming Ukraine is the Path to Peace. Nicholas Grossman, really appreciate you joining us today. Look forward to speaking speaking to you uh, again in the not-too-distant future. Sure. Thanks. It would be my pleasure. Thank you, sir. All right. I'm, I, I think it was important to have that conversation because I've heard, you know, since the beginning of the war, there's a lot of folks who listen to this show, who listen to the stations that we're on, who consider themselves, uh, you know, anti-war activists. I am one of them. Yes. I am with you. But uh, as he said there in, in our conversation, you know, I don't know how you can be against uh, the U.S. and their war uh, against Iraq and all of their many wars, our many wars around the world, and not be against what Russia is doing in Ukraine. Right. I just don't get it. If you're against imperialism when the U.S. does it, you should be against imperialism when Russia does it. And and I appreciate that Grossman really, he really simplified, I think, the conflict and where it stands. I mean, maybe there would have been a time, you know, at the beginning that looked like Ukraine was willing to make some, some concessions, yeah. would have bargained away yeah. some things with Russia, yeah. but Putin has missed that window. And now I don't think it's the same landscape as it was when it started. Yeah, and it's hard to blame Ukraine, who is, you know, looking at unfathomable losses here if they don't want at this point to make peace with Ukraine, with uh, with Russia, if they don't want to concede their own lands. Uh, it's it's hard to hold them at, the, at fault for that. Yeah, and I think there's an important point to be made as well, that if you let a dictator get away with it and get something out of it that he wants, he's going to do it again. Speaking of that... Let's take a quick break. And that good news I promised earlier in the show? Well, that's straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. I know what I needed, and I don't want to waste more time. No, I don't. I'm in a New York state of mind. Yes, I am. At least for the moment. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. That's where the good accountability news is coming from, at least today. Former President Donald Trump said in a sworn affidavit, that he does not have any documents sought by the New York Attorney General in its investigation of the Trump Organization's finances, as they are believed very likely in uh, in coming days, the New York Attorney General, to bring civil charges against Donald Trump, his organization, perhaps his kids, Ivanka, Eric, and Don Jr., as part of the long investigation into years of tax, bank, and insurance fraud bought by the Fraud, uh, fraud by the uh, disgraced former president. The probe, which could result in heavy fines and fees and even dissolution of the Trump organization entirely, mirrors a similar one that is still said to be underway by the Manhattan district attorney considering criminal charges for those very same things that could result in jail time for all of those folks. Anyway, the news on Friday in the civil case is that a one-page signed affidavit filed with the court on Friday 
by Donald Trump was his unsuccessful attempt to end the civil contempt ruling and the daily fine to go with it of $10,000 per day that was imposed on him last Monday by New York State Judge Arthur Engeron. After a brief telephonic hearing on Friday morning, the judge denied Trump's motion to purge his contempt ruling, which means day after day after day, uh, he's racking up fines of $10,000 for contempt of court for not turning over the documents. That uh, the court ordered. Or that the court ordered, or at least explaining why he's not turning them over in a way that the judge <laughs> buys. Uh, you mean tr- just saying the dog ate my homework isn't enough? Uh, apparently not for this judge. Uh, Trump's, uh, who wrote Trump's personal affidavit, is completely devoid of any useful detail. He said, notably, it fails to state where he kept his files, how his files were stored in the regular course of business, who had access to such files, what, if any, the retention policy was for such files, and importantly, where he believes such files are currently located. The judge also found the sworn statement from Trump's attorney to be unsatisfactory as well. The judge previously said Trump could end the contempt charges if he complied with the subpoena for these documents or if he or his attorneys detailed their efforts to search for the documents that are sought by the subpoena. Lawyers for New York Attorney General Letitia James noted in a letter to the judge, quote, Mr. Trump's two-paragraph two affidavit adds no useful information to the mix. Mr. Trump merely states off the top of his head with no hint that he conducted any type of actual search that he has no documents in response to the December 21 subpoena in his, quote, personal possession. It is not plausible that Mr. Trump authored only three documents dealing with the value of his assets and his wealth, they wrote. They were going to try to get away with that. Wow. They are. They're still trying to get away with it. But uh, good. Let them do it as long as they want. It's costing Donald Trump $10,000 a day, which I'm sure drives him absolutely insane. And with that, I might sleep better tonight. we got to get out. My thanks to my guest today, Professor Nicholas Grossman of the University of Illinois, to my producer, as always, Desi Doyen. Yep. Thank you. And to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always appreciated. It is always an honor. If you missed any portion of our program today, you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. We hope to keep those free forever. All of which is only thanks to those of you who are kind enough to stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Brad Blog. I'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. I'm in a New York state of 